someone shared with me this kind of mantra that they use recently. You know, something that's really hard or something that's really frustrated them or when things just feels like everything's going wrong, they ask, will this still bother me tomorrow? Will it still bother me in a week? Will it still bother me in a month? Will it still bother me in a year? And I think it's a really, really good way to put things in perspective. And, you know, sometimes you just kind of need to grit your teeth and wait it out or, you know, persevere through something and things change. And so keeping that in the back of your mind always is like, this won't last forever. Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit, a podcast that sits down with amazing leaders every week to discuss what it takes to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is, both personally and professionally, to build history-making companies. Speaking of incredible companies, we don't do sponsorships on the show. So if you're inspired by the stories of my guests, my call to action is to reach out and let's find a great home for you in the Kleiner portfolio. Did you just have a birthday? Yeah, on Sunday. Happy birthday. Thank you. So <laughs> 21 was when you started and now... Just turned 31. 31. Yeah. What, did you do anything? I went to the snow actually. Okay. Yeah. The ski season's just kicked off in Australia and we've had... The best start to the season in two decades or something. So I was like, I have to get down there. Where is skiing in Australia? It's called the Snowy Mountains. Okay. About a six six hour drive. Six. From Sydney. And do you have a place up there? Like, do you spend the weekends there? I try and get down once or twice a season. So I just got like a a little Airbnb um, for the weekend. But it was good. It was kind of quiet still. Because I think, you know, normally you, you can't really go until a bit later in Australia. So Yeah, we've had probably some of the worst ski seasons possible here. Have you been, Is to, that Ta- right? have you been to Tahoe? I haven't been to Tahoe oh, yet. Oh, dude. Dude, go yeah, to Tahoe. This winter, I'll have to... Uh, well, so I don't know. Are you a summer sports guy too? Like boat sports? Wakeboarding or whatever, surfing off the back of the boat? Tahoe summer, in my opinion, is better than Tahoe winter. Okay. You got to go to Tahoe. Okay. It's like... Maybe a three-hour drive from here. Yeah, right. And like one of the best-kept secrets in the world. Yeah. It's stunning. Okay. Anyway, happy belated. (laughs) Thanks for being here. Let's kick things off. I'm going to read your background back to you. Tell me where I go wrong, and then we'll go from there. I'm already going to go wrong. You studied at the, how do you say the school that you went to? (laughs) Uh, The University of Wollongong. (laughs) It's a mouthful. Oh, man. (laughs) That's awesome. And then what's Griffith University? You split time between the two? So I actually straight out of high school, I ended up taking a job at the local council. It was called a cadetship at that point in time. So I actually worked full time at council and then they put me through university. So they paid for me to go to college part time. So I was studying at the University of Wollongong while I was working there. So I did that for a couple of years. Then I moved to Sydney after that. So you worked for the city? Yeah. And then the city paid for your tuition? Yeah, it was like this amazing program. I actually was never part of the plan to do it. I always wanted to be a a journalist. And so my plan was always to sort of get out of Wollongong, which is a great city, but it's a small city in Australia, about an hour south of Sydney. And long wanted to be a journalist, but it was, you know, literally... One afternoon, I was in in the car on the way home from exams with my mum and she picked up the local paper and the paper had an ad from the council advertising these cadetships. And so the deal was you could get a job. You know, they had like a Bachelor of Planning, a planning cadetship. There was a business cadetship. There was a few others. So I applied for 
the business cadetship and the planning cadetship and ended up getting offered both. I ended up deciding I'll do the business cadetship. Good range of experience and you kind of get assigned to different projects and things, but they, they put me through a commerce degree. So yeah, I did that. It was, a, it was an awesome couple of years. What a good program. You worked a couple hours a day or something and then you'd go to school? It was full-time. So it was a full-time job and they give you, I think it was four hours off a week to go oh. to lectures and things and everything else you do just outside of work hours, but they pay for it, which was the- uh, So cool. Yeah, you know, the, the main thing. And then you know, during the day, you're getting experience. Like I spent some time in- the corporate strategy team and HR, and then a good chunk of time in their, their media and comms team as I was trying to find my way back to um, the journalism dream. I love it. So then you went to a place called Polonizer and you spent six months there. And my understanding of this is that it was kind of a startup incubator or covering startups in Australia. And, right. and you created some publication within that covering startups. Is that right-ish? Yeah, yeah. I was looking for my escape out of the world of cardigans and bureaucracy at, at the council. And so ended up finding that this job, Polonizer, was probably the kind of preeminent startup incubator in Australia at that point in time. Yeah. And they were launching this new website. And the intention was to cover you know, this emerging startup and tech scene in Australia. So I took the job editing that which was fantastic, you know, out every day speaking to founders, investors, really sort of getting a up-close look at, at what, what was happening. What were you talking to them about? So the whole idea was to tell the stories and share lessons from founders and the tech scene. So it was really like intended for other founders to learn how to launch build a company. So it was, it was really great. It was sort of like my own sort of study experience, really, like getting sort of that insight. And I just was fascinated because it was an opportunity to learn about all these different areas. But like a lot of startups, the best made plans turn a profit and, and grow uh, sort of didn't come to, to fruition. So it, um, <laughs> it sort of folded and I found out that they'd run out of money. Um, and, and so I was like- Six uh, months. Yeah. Six yeah. months, quick stint. Quick stint. Um, and so I was out of work and then uh, you know, fortunately got introduced to, um, to Mel and Cliff at, at And you were 20 at that point? Yeah, 2021. 20, 2021. Yeah. Then you find this company called Canva, and you have been there for almost 10 years. Is that right? Yeah, it'll be 10 years in March next year. That's insane. You started as the head of comms, so you're employee number five. Yeah. You started as the head of comms, did three and a half, almost four years of that. Then you were the product lead. You did about a year of that. Then you were the head of people. You did about two years of that. Then you were the head of marketing. You did about a year and a half of that. And now you are the CMO as of a year and a half ago. It's surreal. Like even going through this resume, you're like on Forbes top CMO lists. Your campaign magazine named you like 2021's top CMO. It's incredible. I mean, it's insane. Congrats, man. What was it like growing up for you in Australia? It was great. Yeah, I had a, um, an awesome childhood. We lived in Sydney. So I was born in Sydney. And then when I was in maybe grade one, you know, my folks decided to get out of the city and, you know, wanted somewhere for me and my brother to grow up that was a, a sort of smaller town. So we moved down towards Wollongong, which is on the coast. It's like nestled between, you know, the ocean and there's a big mountain range. So it's an amazing place to grow up and heaps to do. Went to school down there and in Wollongong and loved that. So it was an awesome childhood down there. What'd your folks do? So my dad is a teacher. He teaches English as a second language and my mum works in retail at the moment, but 
you know, looked after us growing up. That's awesome. Yeah. How close do you live to them now? So my dad's still down that way. My mum's actually not too far away from me in Sydney now. I pretty much want to spend this entire episode on Canva because that's pretty much your entire-, entire <laughs> You don't want to talk about the council? <laughs> entire lived experience. This company, for those that have not heard about it, is big, very, very big. Over 2,000 employees, last phrase that- a $40 billion valuation, whatever that means today, it has 60 million plus monthly active users. Is that right? Uh, it's 85 now. Holy hell. 85 million monthly actives. Crazy, isn't it? <laughs> That's so many. It's raised 570 plus million dollars to date, founded in 2012 by Mel and Cliff and Cameron. It's used in every country around the world in over a hundred languages. For those listening, what does Canva do? In its sort of simplest pitch, Canva makes designing anything really easy. So, you know, the idea emerged when Mel was actually teaching design software at at university. So she actually took a job at uni while, while she was studying and was teaching programs like Photoshop and InDesign. And the thing that she couldn't get over was how complicated and how difficult it was not just to learn those programs, but to actually use them. And so the idea for Canva was to build a platform that was online, it was free, it was easy to use. So you can now go to canva.com or jump on one of the apps and literally create anything from a presentation to a video to a social media graphic. There's hundreds of millions of templates and photos and, you know, fonts all in that one place. So it's really easy, drag and drop, create your design, and then you can download it, you know, or turn it almost into anything from a printed product to a website. Can you tell the story of leaving Polonizer and what happened? It's an incredible story of how you found Canva. Yeah. So I guess I found out this news that I was out of work and I was sharing a flat with my cousin at that point. So I'd made the move to Sydney and he let me have his, his spare room. So I was you know, thinking, oh my gosh, like I, um, I'm not going to be able to pay rent. What am I going to do? I've like left this good job in, in Wollongong and, and you like moved to Sydney. Yeah, it was, it was good. No, I, d- I did like it. I guess after a few years at, you know, 21, council started <laughs> to get a little, uh, little slow. Um, so I definitely, I definitely wanted something faster paced and I was really keen to get into to the sort of startup space. So that was why I'd made the move. But then when it, um, you know, Polonizer, that gig sort of fell over, I was in desperate need of figuring something else out. So I reached out to a bunch of people, but one of the people that I reached out to for some advice was Nikki Shivak from Blackbird Ventures. And so Blackbird, you know, to this day is probably the preeminent venture firm in Australia. And they'd actually just written the first check into Canva as a fund. So he put me in touch with Mel and Cliff and said, you've got to go at least have a coffee, have a chat with them. A couple of weeks later, they were back from Perth, I think, where they both grew up and I sort of met them in Surrey Hills and went to a cafe there and, and you know, had a bit of a chat and they told me what they're up to. And I, I tried my best to tell them, you know, a bit more about what I'd been up to, why I was sort of interested in working for them. Mind you, they weren't hiring at this point. And so, you know, I, I kind of walked away and knew that uh, I hadn't really done the best job. 
selling myself. Like they, I could tell that they were kind of a bit distracted and not super interested. And so I went home that night and I'm like, I really need a job. And this company seems awesome. And, you know, the, the vision at that point even was really clear and really inspiring. And so, you know, I sat down and wrote this big, long email of all the things that I thought I could come in and help them with. And so lo and behold, I got a reply from Cliff and, you know, like he does, he took a bit of a bet and said, why don't you come in for a day? The rest is history, I guess. What was on that list? Do you remember the things that that you wrote on that list? One of the things on the list was to help with their first funding announcement. So they just closed this round. With Blackbird, yep. Yeah. And at that point, it was the largest seed funding round in Australia. And, you know, they had some really incredible names that had sort of pitched in. And so, you know, I said, I'll come in and help write the release. And I, you know, I'd, I'd done media and comm. So I was like, I can help do the announcement content to do some blogging and help in that space, get their social media up and running, you know, a whole bunch of other things, all the things that I'd heard that, you know, they, they said that they were starting to think about. Right, right. <laughs> what caught your attention? I guess maybe the distinction that I'm trying to draw was, yeah, could it have been any company and you were at the point where it didn't matter? Or was there something about what you saw? And I guess it's easy in hindsight to be like, yeah, yeah. obviously, you know, I knew, I knew Canva was going to be a $40 billion company. <laughs> I don't know. In that moment, what were you thinking? I don't know. I, I guess I connected with Mel and Cliff. Like, I, I think the thing that, you know, anyone would say that spent time with them is just how down to earth they are and like how clear it is their values. And so, you know, that really shone through from the conversation with them. And I guess, you know, I was also really interested about the space that they were getting into. Like I completely agreed with the premise that design should be accessible to everyone. And Mm -hmm. there was this real sense of mission and purpose in actually opening up the tools to everyone to be able to create and doing that in a way that's free and, you know, puts the user first, I thought was actually really, really important. And, And I guess, you know, you've seen that today we have, tens of millions of teachers and students using the program in schools every day mm-hmm. um, for free. You know, you've got people getting businesses off the ground in 100 languages, 190 countries around the world, people that you know, don't necessarily have the means to, to pay. And so we've obviously built the business over the past few years, but so much of our impact is actually what the platform's done in a free sense as well. I know you don't have the list in front of you today, but I'm very curious about this list. If knowing what you know now, if you were rewriting that list, <laughs> how far off would that list be from what you wrote? In terms of what I what I did? Yeah, like in terms of the things that you suggested that you could have done. Uh, it was probably the first, I don't know, year, 18 months of work with a few other things yeah. thrown into the mix, obviously. But yeah, I pretty much did that list. <laughs> you did the list. Yeah. I guess retrospectively, is there anything you would have added to that list that you feel like, oh, I wish I did that. If I knew what I know now, I wish I did that thing. The one thing that wasn't on the list that I ended up doing was cooking lunches. Um, I don't know if I would have added that to the list, though. A good day where we hired a proper chef. Like cooking lunches for the company. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Like I felt like, yeah, particularly in those early days when you're a small team, you, you kind of jump in and do what needs to be done. So there yeah. was, was nothing that I felt like I missed out on. Maybe there's areas you know, down the track that would have been interesting to learn about or, or sink my teeth into. Um, earlier at the time were mel and cliff together at that point yeah they were a couple yeah were you thinking like wait a second <laughs> did, did you know when you wanted- i didn't <laughs> did no you- i didn't know i didn't know until 
sort of a while later and it was never like it was never a said thing so it was just implicit I, I guess the rest of the team knew um <laughs> you know but it was like after a while I was like, oh they, they kind of came to work in the same van and you know like they um together all the time and at some point I kind of cottoned on they'd been together they started their first company when they were together in in Perth Fusion Books right so had been together for quite a few years at, that's at that so funny time. yeah and the core group of five seven of you that were there how many of you are still there most of us and aren't most of you executives? Yes, at that point, you know, we had Dave, our CTO, was there on the engineering side. Jim and Mike, you know, still around on the engineering side as well. So Mel Cliff and Cam and a sort of few other folks in and out around that point in time too. So, you know, the most amazing thing is a lot of those early folk, you know, at that period and after that are still around and have obviously done lots of different things over the years. But that's been a big part of what sort of made Canvas special, I think. Earlier, you, when you were talking about Cliff responding to your email, you said like he does. The context that you said like he does is taking a bet on you. I don't know. The feeling that I got was that you're not the first or last person that he took a bet on. Yeah. Can you unpack that more? Yeah, I think Cliff, one of his skills is understanding people. You know, he, he sees the best in people and can recognize people's strengths. And I think that's served him really well over the years. And, it, you know, it can be advisors, it can be team members, but knowing a particular space or area that there's a gap in and then being able to figure out how to fill that gap is something that he's done well. But I think he's also comfortable and willing to take a risk and take a sort of calculated bet. So, um, you know, I'd say it's, it's those two things. How much of that do you have in you now? I ask that because I had several people, but one specific person throughout my career that kept making bets on me that like nobody else really should have. And he kept making bets on me over and over again and putting me into jobs that I had no business being in and letting me sink or swim. And to some degree, I mean, I own the world, but also I now have that almost too much. I've almost over-rotated <laughs> towards having that right? because it worked out for me. Yeah. And I just think that's a much more fun way of going about building teams. Yeah. I don't know. How much of that do you have in you? It's definitely something I do a lot more of now. It's also, that's rewarding, right? When you, you know, you see something, a particular strength that someone has in a team and, you know, you can give them an opportunity and, they rise to the challenge and they do an amazing job. It's like incredibly rewarding. So, you know, it's definitely something that I have tried to do as we've built the marketing team. And there's a bunch of folks leading big, big parts of the marketing org that have grown along the way. And I get a real kick out of that. I think it's really cool. Is it tricky, like being the young guy, the one that's learning on the fly rather than that's seen everything in their work history? Part of it is like, well, the bets that were taken on you, you basically want to in turn take those bets on other people. But because someone's taking a bet on you, you generally have more blind spots than the people that have seen it. So you got to hire a team around you of people that are generally more seasoned. Like you don't actually, you can't always take bets. Like you're the guy that's being bet on. Totally. You, can't, you can't then just take a bunch of more bets. Do you ever think about balancing those two yeah, things? Yeah, I think it is a real balance. And I guess in my mind, there's two factors that come into play. And these two things, sometimes there can be a tension between the two. And on one side, you have like skill gaps or areas that 
the organization actually needs capability in. And so, you know, if you've never done growth marketing or product marketing or, you know, HR, or there's like core skills that you actually need to bring in experience in. And it's important that you do that. But the other thing with growing a company that is equally important, I think, is honoring the context and the values and the culture of the organization. And so the best way to do that is to have people that really deeply understand it and embody it to also be part of that mix. And so, you know, for me, a successful team has a mix of those components. You're bringing in new pieces of the puzzle, but you've also got the representation of the values and things that are inherent to what's made the company successful as well. The way that I've heard this described is like culture carriers. Mm. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like basically balancing the fact that someone in their DNA has to know exactly what this company is all about because sometimes the culture of the company can be as important as the skills and competencies that you bring to the table yeah. at that company. Yeah. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I totally agree with that. Where you often end up seeing that is when you open new offices. That's where people really focus on culture carriers because so much of a new office is the risk associated with new offices is a different culture because the founders aren't there usually, that kind of thing. Okay, so... You join Employee 5, you start working on the launch, the announcement of the seed round. And correct me if I'm wrong, but it was supposed to be, okay, Zach, come on in. In a few weeks, we're going to announce this thing. We're going to launch the product. And then like we're off into the races. That's not how it went down, is it? No, no, yeah. It took a bit longer than that. <laughs> I think I um, I came in and you know, we were like going to launch within a month and we we're going to do this funding round and then quickly get the product out. And I, I definitely think that's been one of the things that um, you know, has been a, a, an ongoing trait is like an ambition around our timelines. One of our values actually is to set crazy big goals and make them happen. And I think the thing that you know, we've definitely realized over time is that the most important thing is actually to have the right goal and something that you'd be happy with delivering, you know, even if it takes a little bit longer than you, um, you anticipated. So it was probably about six months later that the product was actually ready to launch. So uh, it was August of that year, August 26th, we officially launched. What happened? Why, why the five-month difference? Uh, so the product had been in development for quite a long time. Like a couple so, of years, right? Yeah. So, so Mel and Cliff had built their previous company, Fusion Books, and yeah, it took the same idea of simplifying the design process, but for the vertical of school yearbooks. So made it easy for teachers and students to, to create their own. And so, you know, in, in many ways it was a prototype, I guess, for what Canva would become. But Canva, you know, was only really made possible with some of the advances in technology, you know, at, at that point in terms of HTML5 and like tablets and Java and, and all these things that were emerging that al- allowed us to actually build it. And that was a big part of the appeal for folks like, you know, Dave Herndon, our our CTO was actually working on the technical challenges of getting Canva built. There was a lot of work that went into that. There was also a lot of work once the product was actually ready of of refining it. 
Yeah, I remember getting my first login and actually having a play around with Canva for the first time. This is after months of being there and, you know, super excited and uh, and logged in. I was actually heading down to a, a friend's place in Wollongong that night. And I was like, you know, come check this out. I'll, sh- I'll show you guys how to use it and like designed a, a sort of mock or tried to design a mock invitation for a party. And, you know, of course it like crashed and error messages everywhere. <laughs> and um, so that was like my first experience with, um, with Canva. Uh, and so there was a lot of work just to like, fix all of that. And then the sort of second step was actually getting it into the hands of real people. And so in that period after our funding announcement, we had advertised like a waiting list so people could actually you know, pop their email down and register for early access to Canva. And so by the time we launched the product, we actually had 50,000 people chomping at the bit to, to get on the product. So there's this huge kind of pent up demand, but something that we did with people that were on that waiting list was actually start testing the product with them. So we would get people in those early days and run like design workshops. So we did them in our office. We did them at some of the local libraries. And, you know, the whole idea would be come in and we'll, we'll teach you some basic design skills that might help you with your social media marketing or your business or whatnot, but get them in the product and you'd see how people would react to the product experience. So we did that in person and then um, we discovered this tool, usertesting.com, and that's a a fantastic tool we still use today. What you can do there is get sort of a random group of people on the internet to try out your product and talk through their experience. And I guess what happened was we'd get people into the product and they just didn't get it. They hated it. You know, they had a terrible experience and it was really interesting because it's like the core fundamentals and the foundations of the products were not the issue. It was people's understanding of how to use it. And so there was this whole period of refinement that happened. And I guess, you know, the things that Mel sort of picked up from that was there was really small things in the user interface that would really affect someone's confidence or someone's understanding. And so it was really simple things. Like we realized with our color picker, we sort of had these, this set of tutorials and this set of asks for people to do. And one of the things was, you know, as they were onboarding to change the color of a circle on the page and people would click on the circle and not be able to find the color picker. They just wouldn't see it <laughs> on the page. And, and so we actually realized if we made the circle the same color as the color picker and had the, you know, a similar circle in the color picker that was the same color as the circle on the page, they'd connect the dots between the two. So they realized, oh, red circle on the page, red circle in the color picker, I'll click the red circle in the color picker and change the color. And so it was like these really seemingly small changes that actually made this really substantive difference in, in terms of, uh, of how people experience the product. The 50,000 people on the wait list, that's a lot for a company that no one's ever heard of. Yeah. What do you attribute that to? It wasn't launched. The funding announcement wasn't there. So, so the funding announcement we did go out with. So you did the funding announcement. Yeah, yeah. And the way that we approached it was to sort of stagger out the story. And so the funding announcement, the really interesting thing was the fact that it was Australia's largest seed round at that point that Mellon Cliff had managed to get all of these big names from Silicon Valley to invest in this little kind of Australian startup. So people like Lars Rasmussen, who co-founded Google Maps and Ken Goldman, the CFO of Yahoo and all these other kind of influential people, um, Bill Tai. And so we talked about the seed round, all of these people, and then really didn't 
share a lot about what the product was. So it was really this kind of stealthy, we were referred to as a stealthy design startup that had raised this sort of huge funding round. There was like a mysterious allure to it. Exactly. And so then the call to action was to go and register for this waiting list. So we started to build some momentum and some excitement about what was coming that way. Was that your first gut feeling like, maybe there's a there there. Like maybe there's actually something like, I don't, maybe this thing's not going to go under. Like maybe, <laughs> maybe this thing's actually going to work. Yeah. Could the company just start to feel, oh my God, even though the product's not out yet, there is demand. We just need to meet this demand. I don't know. Like I feel like at the point in time it was, I think we were comparing ourselves to other products at that time. And Which ones? I think it was called Mailbox. Yeah. It doesn't even exist anymore, I don't think. Like Dropbox <laughs> maybe bought it. But like uh-huh. they had like, it was like hundreds of thousands or a million people on their waiting list. You know, so we're like kind of looking at others going, oh, it was never like, oh, wow, we really nailed this. It was always, I don't know, the ambition was always much higher, I'd say. Yeah. I was sitting in this room with the co-founder of Okta, Freddie. Yeah. He was talking about how when they were in the same days as you're describing at Canva, he was like, Jubin, everyone's killing it except for you. You go to these yeah. parties, you look around, you look at these funding announcements and everybody's killing it. And you're telling everybody else you're killing it. <laughs> Meanwhile, nobody's killing it. Yeah. <laughs> like there's maybe a couple of companies. Yeah. Is that kind of how it felt? Yeah, yeah. There's this great saying, don't compare your behind the scenes to everyone else's highlight reel. And I think that says it so well, because it's exactly that. You're always seeing the best spin on everything else. Or you're seeing the snazzy video that they've put out or whatever it might be. But actually, everyone's kind of going through the same thing. One of the realizations that I had after having done a couple startups myself and then coming to KP and then getting a look under the hood of a bunch more startups, these are like world-class startups, right? These are the best of the best, is I realized that Almost every company is kind of a loosely held disaster, you know, like not just controlled chaos. Yeah, not just not even just our startups like Salesforce. Like if you're in Salesforce right now, you're like, this is how this runs. You know, like I bet Canva probably feels like that today. Sometimes with thousands of employees and it's like, wait. We don't have this. Yeah. You know, like we're missing this. Yeah. You're never done, are you? I no, guess that's it. No, that's no. And so at the time, do you think that was a healthy pressure from like mailbox or whatever it was? Like, we got to get this thing out. What was the psyche internally? Yeah, I mean, there was there was a lot of pressure to launch. And I think it was actually, you know, it was one of those moments where Mel sort of argued the case for like, it's the product's got to be right. It's got to be ready. And, you know, this was at the time that the lean startup was taking hold and was very popular. And so it was kind of like, it was counterintuitive move. Like perfectionism is a negative. Yeah, exactly. There was people at that point telling us pre-launch that we should be running, you know, Google ads promoting what the product could be, you know, to determine, you know, AB test our way to this product experience. And I guess Canva really went against that approach. It was kind of a counterintuitive thing to do. So help me understand this. Waitlist is going up during that six months. In the waitlist, you're testing the product on those on the waitlist. It continues to grow. Meanwhile, people are telling you it sucks. <laughs> like they don't like it. Like yeah. in those in the early part of the waitlist. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> okay, so you start tweaking it, you start tweaking it, you start tweaking it. That six months was basically an incubation for the product it was a soft launch. It was just getting it 
tweaking it, getting it right. Then what? You launch it? We launched it. So this is August 2013. We reached out to a whole bunch of press and kind of unveiled what this stealthy design startup was up to. That was kind of underwhelming. It was an underwhelming moment. Like we got some good press, but there was a, um, I think it was a Pando Daily article. Again, Pando Daily is no longer around, but this was, was sort of appeared to TechCrunch at that point in time. The article criticized our like cheesy stock photography and it was not the resounding applause that we, <laughs> that we were hoping for from them. So uh, I think that kind of launch night was a little bit disappointing. And you're responsible, like comms is your thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and I've just put it in the hand of someone who didn't love it. But no, no, I mean like that, that press, I think that was our best sort of early marketing at that point. So you know, we continued to get people on board and our community at that point were becoming really, really passionate. And so we had these early users that were solving a real problem for. And a lot of those folks at that point were social media marketers and bloggers and content creators. So I think what worked well was that we hit a real pain point for them and that group of people, you know, by the nature of their role, constantly sharing and talking to one another. So we started to see this word of mouth effect kick in in that, in that community. What was your first signal that maybe you actually have product market fit? Was there a moment or a series of events, customer things, anything that happened that you, the way I describe it, felt like you were getting pulled by the market, like really pulled into a direction? It was definitely tapping into some of those like social media and content groups. I remember actually um, you know, 2014, it, it would have been, Cliff said, there's a social media conference in San Diego, social media marketing world. So, you know, pack your bags and go and try and get everyone using the platform. So I literally like printed all these posters and some t-shirts and stuff like that and went to that event and spent you know a lot of time talking to everyone there and sort of um you know showing them camera and getting them all on board but seeing the response from that community was very very clear that it solved a really important pain point for them was there sales at the time or was that you we didn't have sales at that like when you talk that. about going to a conference getting people on board like that's all you doing this that was me at that point yeah and the company's still like sub 20 people yeah, it would be pretty small. Still tiny. Yeah. What happened with the Huffington Post? Yeah, so fast forward a little while and- how? What's a little while? Would have been maybe 2015. Okay. So we'd been out for some time. The free product was all we had at that point. So you could use Canva for free and then some of our stock photography you could use for a dollar. So there was this sort of premium element to our library, but the sort of- Next step in the vision was really to launch a premium version of Canva, you know, a way that we could start to monetize. And so we're starting to think about this internally and map out what that would look like. And sort of coincidentally around that time, I remember got an email from one of the designers at Huffington Post and she said, we'd love to have a chat. We've been using Canva and love it, but we have this problem that we'd like some help with. At that point, I guess the challenge that she had, she was like one designer 
you know, there was like hundreds of journalists and social media editors and all these people creating content every day. And so they just had this kind of barrage of stuff going out on social media and on the website with different versions of the logos and incorrect colors and all this sort of stuff. And so I guess you know, ended up having a chat with her and the big thing that they needed help with was ensuring brand consistency and alignment, but continuing to empower their team to create content. And so out of that, we actually prototypes what are now team templates. In that working session with the HuffPost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's um, you know, a couple of conversations and then we realized like, oh, we can use the same premise of a template that we have in the sort of free version, but for a specific brand. So at that point, me and a designer internally, we just you know, hacked together some templates. So there was the social media quote graphic with their logo. There was, you know, a banner, there was some blog graphics. And so had sort of this suite of templates that we created with their, their colors, fonts and logo, and then just put it on a WordPress page <laughs> with a password in front of it. That was really how we sort of prototype team templates. They shared that internally. So all their reporters and social media editors were just going to this WordPress page for a while and sort of remixing our templates. Can I ask you an honest question? In these moments when things are growing like crazy and you're doing all these things, I have found over and over again that you can get a little bit caught up in the moment. What I mean by that is I have seen so many people at early stage startups, especially younger folks that aren't super seasoned in their careers, which are generally the ones that are signing up for an early stage startup anyway, right? Kind of be like, I am doing all these other things. I'm doing sales in your case. I'm doing marketing. I'm doing all these other, I'm wearing all these hats. And the common sentiment that I hear is like, why am I not compensated for it? Like, why am I not, in some crazy way, as opposed to enjoying the ride that you're on, you start to ask yourself like, well, I'm doing all these other things. Why am I not being appropriately compensated for all the things that I'm doing? Did you ever feel that way? No, no, it was, no, it was something I really thought about. I was always just excited about, I don't know, it felt like a blessing that I was in a place where I was able to tackle all of these problems and work on all of these things. Maybe it was, you know, part of having previously been at council where it was very much, you know, you stay in your lane and you mm -hmm. have, this is your role. And like, I remember when I was at council, I uh, done this kind of cadetship and it felt like I'd worked on all these different things. And I'd like helped out the mayor, you know, working in the media team and sort of worked on a whole bunch of projects for him. And I remember actually applying for a full-time job you know, partway through my cadetship and it was like a marketing role at the Botanic Garden in Wollongong. And I, you know, there's a couple other roles like that that I put my hand up for and I thought I definitely wasn't as experienced as other people, but, you know, I was up for the challenge and it was always, oh, you don't have the years of experience or, you know, you haven't done this thing. And despite like my manager being really supportive, it was just like the kind of the organization, the infrastructure there just didn't allow it if you didn't check all the boxes. And so, you know, with Canva, it was like, sure, you want to like write the media release, like you want to cook lunches, you know, we need someone to do this thing. And it was so it was always, I was always grateful to have the opportunity to jump into these different areas. Let me ask you another way. This is your fifth title officially in nine years, now CMO. Did you ever ask for a title? No, I think the only... 
the only conversation I probably would have had was the communications role. It was just like the first one. <laughs> yeah. To, you know, cause you, you need to have something on paper when you're, um, like head you're talking to, to yeah, reporters yeah, right, or something, right. you know, like, they were <laughs> like some form of credibility at yeah. 21 years old. Yeah. But it's always been, it's always been very clearly a part of the culture. It's never really been kosher to focus on those things. And I think it's been part of like the fabric of, of Canva has been focusing on goals and taking on harder challenges and learning new skills. And we've spoken a lot about that over the years and kind of codified what makes people successful at Canva. And you know, I remember sort of early on as we were starting to build out some of the people frameworks and you'd look at what other companies were doing or people would have these references of, you know, Google does this and they've got, you know, these levels and this company does that. But then you'd hear the conversations that would happen at those sort of organizations and people would talk about being, a, you know, P6 or a P10 or, a, you know, it would introduce all of these kind of motivators that were actually counterproductive to having a big impact and achieving goals and like people's focus would drift elsewhere. So we've always fought really hard to make sure that the frameworks that we build internally do focus on what's going to have the biggest impact for our community and how we're going to tackle the next big goal and, you know, recognize the people that will, will take on a harder goal and are able to learn and grow and all those sorts of things. Yeah. So if I was on your team, how big is your team now? There's over 300 people in the marketing org. So if I was on your team and I was young, super ambitious, and I wanted more, is there a right and wrong way to articulate that to you? At Canva. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think the people that have grown and actually taken on you know, bigger roles or areas of responsibility have asked what's the biggest impact that they can have in terms of the goals that they're tackling. And so it's this focus on goals and skill development. So we actually built out this framework internally. It's called the 12 skills. And we actually built it out going back a couple of years now, following our first 360 review. So it was at this point in time as the team was growing, people wanted more clarity on how do you kind of progress your career here and you know what do you need to do to develop and grow and all of that. So exactly the same sort of questions that you're kind of alluding to. So we did this 360 review and so we opened it up to everyone in the company at that point in time. And I guess everyone was able to pick the people that they worked most closely with and asked them like two open-ended questions. Number one, what are my strengths and what do I do really well? What are my superpowers? And number two, what are my opportunity areas to grow in? And I guess the really interesting thing that we saw in doing that, like obviously individually the feedback was really helpful, but in aggregate there was actually some really key themes and trends and so the things that people that were doing really well were called out for were really really consistent and the areas that you know generally people had to improve were really really consistent and so we ended up actually boiling it down to these four pillars that we saw as being the pillars of success and so it was your craft which is your technical capability you know in an area like design or engineering or PR or whatever it might be strategy so your ability to actually chart a course you know figure out where you're going to go and then move mountains to get there communication so your ability to engage positively with others proactively communicate you know listen with positive intent all those sorts of things and then finally leadership and coaching and so there was these four buckets and 
you know, the intention with that was that everyone would actually spike in one or two, but everyone had room to grow in other areas as well. And so it became this really great framework and tool to use to discuss like skill development and growth. And so, you know, that's now actually emerged and we've built that out. So there's sort of 12 skills that sit under those four buckets. But ultimately, you know, everyone at Canva from someone who's just started to Mel is constantly looking at, you know, this season or on this project, what skills they're actually trying to build and grow and what are the areas that will really unlock. And of those 12, what does great look like? The people that you think of right now that are the absolute best people on your team or in the company, how many of those do they have? Uh, so I guess that's the interesting thing at every role demands a different mix of those skills. And so the way we thought about it is that, you know, every role kind of has a fingerprint. And so, you know, if you're coming in as an individual engineer, just getting started, you're going to need to be pretty proficient technically. You need to be a strong engineer. You're going to have to be good in terms of strategy. You need to be able to solve problems and sort of progress things forward of your own accord. But maybe you don't need to be as strong in communication and you know leadership. And so those are areas that you might have room to grow. But you know if your ambition is to then take on coaching a team or you're interested in sort of moving in that route, you'd be wanting to focus on how do you build those skills and, and finding those opportunities sort of organically or in terms of the projects that you're working on to actually build that muscle. So I think that's the interesting thing about it. It's not necessarily a rigid hierarchy. It's got to be, you know, applied to what you're actually trying to do. And so, you know, it's a dynamic way to do that, you know, depending on what people's goals are and the projects that they're working on. And did this framework start to come about when you were the head of people at that point? We introduced the pillars and started to use that in our vernacular and that then fed into everything from, you know, how we were giving feedback to Canva University, you know, which I, I launched when I was in, in the people role, which is our like internal, you know, learning and development program. So we started to build out workshops and, and training and, uh, and, and coaching around um, those skill areas. And then as we've scaled, we've built more and more depth to it. What I cannot understand is how do you... You go from head of comms to product lead, to head of people, to head of marketing, to CMO. It's like three or four different functions. How do you learn? You obviously did not know how to be the head of people. You've never done that before. When Mel and Cliff come to you and they're like, all right, this is the job. Yeah. How the hell do you go about learning? I think firstly, it's like a curiosity. I've always really enjoyed the process of learning and finding out about a new area and discovering something. So, you know, I think definitely starting with curiosity and then the second piece is actually figuring out who's really good at something and learning from them. And so you know, something that we've done many, many times over the years is to bring in advisors in all sorts of different fields to learn from and help us work on the next sort of problem set in, internally. So... As an example, when we were setting out to first start localizing the products, we were only in English at that point in time, realized there was this huge opportunity in reaching the rest of the world. You know, 80, 85% of the world don't speak English. So huge growth opportunity if you can tap into that. And so we realized that was something we needed to do. And so we started on the journey and set our first goal of launching in Spanish um, as sort of the simplest language to, to start localizing into. And so at that point, 
we looked around and chatted to lots of people and said, who does localization really, really well? And identified that like Pinterest had actually absolutely knocked it out of the park in terms of localization. And so um, as an example, Sylvia, who had led their localization, came on board as an advisor and spent some time with us and the team that were working on that at that point and helped you know, really get in the weeds and help figure out what were all the things we needed to do in terms of building the team? How do you choose a translation management software? How do you hire translators? How do you build all the infrastructure around that? And so that's, you know, just one example of where we've tapped in advisors and, you know, over the years have had a whole range of people from the people role through to marketing now. Um, and I found that's a really great way to learn on the fly. I've heard you say the following quote, There have been several times over the past few years where things have felt at a breaking point. I've learned that it's a natural byproduct of growth, and it just means that we need to rethink everything. What does that mean? As a company is growing through hypergrowth, it's a completely different company every three, six months or more when you're kind of doubling in size. If you think about the sort of analogous example, like most companies are growing incrementally, right? A a good year would be growing, you know, a couple percent perhaps. And so you're at best maybe adding say 10% to your team every year. It's really incremental change. And there's a different set of challenges that come with that. But you compare that to a company where you're growing by 50 or hundred percent year on year, you're doubling the team, you know, you're tackling twice as many goals, like literally everything breaks from how you hire to the way that you come together for your all hands, the way that you communicate, like literally everything breaks at those different inflection points along the way. And so what it means is that you constantly have to revisit and figure out what is the right way to do things for that next chapter ahead. The way that I talk about it internally with our portfolios, like it's the ultimate caviar problem. Yeah, it's a first-class problem. Exactly. (laughs) Like when things are breaking that quickly, that means we're growing that quickly. One of the challenges that I've seen manifest through this is you have seen the previous version and then now the scaled version, and then you're going to see the next version, right? Let's imagine you're a new employee where you're coming in to the newly broken version, (laughs) not having seen that thing work three months ago. Does where I'm going make sense? They're like, wait a second, what's going on here? Yeah, yeah, totally. You know, people are like, oh, it's all broken. You're like, yeah, no, (laughs) we need to fix it. (laughs) It's sort of part of the the approach, isn't it? There's a quote I really like, actually, I heard about leadership. And I think it kind of speaks to this too. And it talks about great leadership, honoring the past, firstly, like delivering in the present, secondly, and then preparing for the future, which I really like, because I think it applies to that too, right? You have to understand where something's come from in order to take it forward. You've also said that I now expect to feel anxious and unsure every few months, usually as my role changes and lots of new people join. It's a similar thread, but talk about that feeling of anxiety. Like, what do you mean? Yeah, I guess there are these kind of waves that you go through, right? As you said, it's like you fix something and you set your course and then it's kind of all off and running. And then you know, a couple months or a year later, it's like, we're back here again, thinking about this thing. You know, there's kind of like a spidey sense, certain things start breaking or there's like these side effects or these symptoms generally that I think, you know, you start to see emerge. And then like over time, the picture comes complete and you figure out 
like, oh, actually we need to kind of like rethink this thing that, that we're doing. But individually, the individual experience, I guess, is this awareness that things are needing to change and you're kind of needing to level up or sort of move on to a new way of figuring things out. I guess it's that process of change. When you were at Pollinizer, you were getting ingratiated into the scene of startups. And in some way, you were talking about what startups are like and bringing more people into that fold. And I imagine through that process is when you started to fall in love with the idea of startups and getting into that. And you were at a startup. That was a startup. And you're studying other startups and you're learning about them and I imagine you start daydreaming about what would that feel like being at these startups that are growing like this? Maybe not, but sometimes I feel that way now. Like I just see these things and I'm, you know, Figma is a good comp. Like that's insane. You know, like that growth is insanity. It's like Canva growth. It's just like mind numbingly fast. Did it feel like you thought it would feel while you're going through this? I don't know if that I had a vivid picture of what it, would be like. I definitely feel like the things that I had longed for in terms of speed and moving quickly and tackling problems and all of that stuff definitely came to life. You know, it was all the things the council hadn't had. Like to give you one example, I remember this would have been what, 20, 2010, 2011, you know, Facebook was growing and, you know, social media had kind of emerged as this big thing. <laughs> and I, I remember pitching the case to council that we should set up a Facebook page. And like, I got tasked with writing, you know, like this 50 page proposal and got forced to go through all these hoops and present it to this business committee and this thing and the IT group and all this sort of stuff. And it just like, I remember it just getting shut down after, you know, it's felt like months of work on this thing. And it like seems so obvious to me, of course, like every business and every organization was going to need to be on social media. And it was just all this kind of redundant work that got thrown out because someone thought it was too risky or didn't like it or you know, didn't understand it. And so, you know, that was what I wanted to not have to deal with anymore. Startups have not been anything like that. The analogy that I like to use is running or biking. I like to do both. And yeah. It never gets easier. You just get faster. (laughs) Does it ever get easier? Because when you're growing, when you're doubling the company in every way, revenue, people, every six months, could even be faster than that. You tear it all down and you rebuild it every six months. So you've done that almost 20 times-ish? Yeah. After the 18th time, are you like, oh my God. Am I doing this again? <laughs> Am I really doing this again? Uh, I think the, the bike analogy is a good one. Except maybe it's kind of like you're riding your bike and then you, you've got to ride faster, but someone also throws you, you know, some juggling balls. And then, uh, you know, it's kind of like you just add this dimensionality to what you're doing. It just gets more and more complex, I think, too, right? And then your tire goes flat. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, chain breaks. <laughs> the tiger starts chasing you and... <laughs> You don't have to answer this, but did you ever think about quitting? Ah. Uh, and I'll, I'll qualify the question. Did that feeling feel so overwhelming? Because it's not easy. Joe Thomas, the founder of Loom, he was talking about how companies grow exponentially, humans grow linearly. So when you're trying to keep up with this exponential growth, I mean, in some ways it's like amazing and it's what everybody dreams about. 
right? Because it's the caviar problem. In other ways, it's almost an impossible challenge that takes everything out of you and some. But that's why I ask about the like quitting things. It's like, it's exhausting. Yeah, I guess it's that exponential versus incremental thing again, right? And I guess that's why we actually have this thing we talk about internally, which is like the hyper growth gap. And so it's basically the gap between, you know, a line that's sort of sloping up to the right and an exponential graph. And the bit in between is the gap that comes from hypergrowth. And I, and I think it really does apply at an individual level. And so, you know, that's why I guess we talk about, you know, you fill that gap with skills that you need to develop. You fill it with people that you hire, you fill it with advisors. Uh, you're constantly trying to fill that gap that hypergrowth causes. But yeah, that's part of the fun. I don't know. There's also periods where it is really, really you know, hard and you do maybe question things. But another thing I've learned is that it's always a matter of perspective and the periods where you're killing it and the periods the struggle don't last forever. Someone shared with me this kind of mantra that they use recently. You know, something that's really hard or something that's really frustrated them or you know, when things just feels like everything's going wrong, they ask, will this still bother me tomorrow? Will it still bother me in a week? Will it still bother me in a month? Will it still bother me in a year? And I think it's a really, really good way to put things in perspective. And, you know, sometimes you just kind of need to like grit your teeth and wait it out or persevere through something and things change. And so keeping that in the back of your mind always is like, this won't last forever. Uh, and then maybe if, if it does last forever and you, you know, you're, you're hating it for, for a long, long time, then it's time to go do something that's else, right? right? That's right, that's right. <laughs> What kind of toll does it take personally? I think that we can glamorize hyper growth startups all we want, and they're amazing. Like I genuinely believe it's the most special thing that someone can do in their life is being a part of this ride. Then you'll, it is the fastest and easiest way to change your life in every which way. But it is so hard. And I almost feel like you're not allowed to talk about, because you're obviously very lucky. You've had an amazing ride. You're employee five at Canva. (laughs) But like, I don't know. I just think it's worth talking about. How hard is it? Can you rationalize it? Because you're like, I'm young. It doesn't matter. This is what I do. Yeah, I go to my friend's house for a party. I'm going to make the party invites in Canva. like, Like the lines just start to blur so meaningfully. My lines are always blurred at all times. And I have a real good way of rationalizing everything for, well, it's fine if I'm on vacation, but I know somebody here, I'll go meet with them or whatever it is. Like I can just blur those lines very quickly. And that compounds over time where you're always working in some way. It's always kind of like, there's just a bubbling te- away. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. It's like a, like a CPU tax that, that you always kind of have that you never feel in the moment. But then over time, the way I've experienced is it kind of just starts to drag. Yeah. Like I just feel... Like there's a little parachute behind me that I'm trying to keep going, you know? I don't know if you felt that way before. Yeah. I definitely have the same feeling that the lines have just blurred. You know, it all becomes like one and the same thing. But it's like if you weren't thinking about Canberra or like whatever other startup you're kind of reflecting on, if you weren't thinking about those things, what else would you be, what else would you be doing? You're saying I choose to think about that. Like I, enjoy I like, think, I like thinking yeah, about it. Yeah. yeah, you enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I guess it like it helps. I think you um you do foster these incredible friendships and relationships going through that kind of shared experience. 
as well. So it's definitely more than a job, you know. But in saying that, I, I definitely feel like to endure it for the long haul, you do need to like look after your, yourself. I've seen lots of people let that go. And I think it's really important knowing when you're at your best and what are the things that you need personally to be the most impactful as well. And that's different for everyone. But I've always thought about that. You know, it's like, how do you physically and mentally stay at it over a long period of time? Yeah. Canva plays a different game in that respect. That's across the org. That's from the top down, isn't it? The way that you all practice that value is very clear to me. You're playing a much more long-term oriented game that you know you got to take care of yourself and do the things that are important to you. Is that fair? Yeah. Like life's bigger than just work uh, as well. And, and I do think that that's something that, you know, they've always done a really great job of working really, really hard. But when you're not working, making sure that you're spending that time with friends or, you know, family or doing the things that you enjoy, whether it's, you know, sport or some other activity. So having that mental switch and making an effort to draw the line is important. I do wonder like whether some of it is maybe a cultural thing too, like being an Australian company. I think there is maybe a different approach to work and and balance and and some of those things, you know, just inherently culturally as well. There 100% is. Yeah. I mean, we were talking about the zero episode earlier. You guys do things differently. Like it's just not the same. It's just not the same. And even the way that you prioritize values from employees to then shareholders to customers, like it's just, it's completely flipped upside down. It works. Okay, we got to wrap up soon. What, uh, what is the two-step plan at Canva? So we have a uh, simple two-step plan and it's been really the guiding mission and vision from Mel and Cliff over the whole journey at Canva. But step one, I guess, for us is to hopefully build one of the most valuable companies in the world. And then step two is to do the most good that we can. And so last year, we took the really exciting step of announcing the Canva Foundation, I guess, Mel and Cliff's philanthropic approach. And they announced that they were going to give away the vast majority of their wealth to step two and do so through the Canva Foundation. So, you know, it's really set up the next few decades of work and impact that I think like everyone at Canva is really, really passionate about doing. So, you know, that's a huge part of why people, I think, choose to work at Canva and the thing that motivates many of us. I have this thing that I get very frustrated by in Silicon Valley where every company has a mission, but the mission is very like product centric. Like I believe that every enterprise should have secure code. That type of mission, I find it a bit disingenuous. And I think it's actually just really difficult to recruit that way because people don't wake up excited about that. Maybe some people do, but most people don't. This mission, let's just build the most valuable company that we can. With value accrues money, careers, upward mobility, value to our shareholders, more people getting access to better design. And then let's go put that money to work for like productive causes for the world. Why do we have to overcomplicate it? Like I just, <laughs> there's something so special about that. And then just live that value. Put pressure on the organization to do everything they can to build a gigantic company so that we can go put that money to work. 
I just think there's something so beautifully simple about that. And I think that's something that is very easy to recruit around. Is that fair? Yeah. And I, and I guess that was something that's been really important as we've figured out the approach there. Like we really wanted to make sure that any of that impact, you know, in terms of the good that we're able to do in the world actually feels like the team is contributing to that by helping build Canva and, and all the things that we can then do rather than it be some separate, you know, philanthropic entity. It was really important that it was a part of Canva and we have this thing where step one actually fuels step two and step two fuels step one. And so by making that a big part of who we are and sharing that ambition and that sense of value and mission, it would have an impact because, you know, people are motivated to use products and services that are actually having that impact in the world. So, you know, for our community, they actually feel proud of the impact that they're having by using the products or enterprises that are paying for Canva because in a way they're also contributing to what we're able to do with step two and the impact that we're having there as well. So it becomes a cycle that ultimately can fuel itself. Very cool. Great place for us to wrap. Always in the same way. First, are you hiring? We are definitely hiring. <laughs> like, uh, I assume you're hiring for a bunch of stuff. Yeah. Any key roles that come to mind? There's a lot that we're hiring for. So check out camera.com slash jobs. Okay. Last one. What does grit mean to you? Grit to me means sticking at it day in, day out over the long haul and being motivated and excited by bettering your best. Zach, flew from Australia to be here. Thank you, man. Appreciate you. Thanks for having me. That's it. Thanks for listening. If you're just discovering the podcast, we have a lot more episodes from organizations like Snowflake, Twilio, Slack, LinkedIn, Box, etc. If you want to keep up or support the show, the best way to do so is by following us on Spotify, subscribing on Apple, and leaving a review. Also, we love feedback, so feel free to email us, grit at kleinerperkins.com. <laughs>